everybody. It is a great joy to hear God's Word preached here every week. Um, it's great to see everybody here. It's also, of course, a, a great privilege for me today to bring God's Word, giving Pastor Rob a, a well-earned uh, week off. So thank you for praying for him, Keith, and pray that that would continue to, to grow fruit in his life. As you go to a conference, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, right, Rob? Um, so may that continue to, to feed his soul. Jesus said, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. So let's, let's pray one more time. Lord, thank you for giving us your spirit, for giving us your word. Uh, with the clarity of your Holy Spirit, in which it was written and preserved and handed down and interpreted to us by your Holy Spirit today. I pray you would bless uh, the preaching of your word as we have sung and worshiped to you, uh, that you would continue to, to fill our hearts uh, today and meet all of our needs in Christ, that we might be all we can be for you this very week. In your name we pray, amen. Today I'm going to finish a sermon series that's been going on for a little bit of a while uh, called Never Leave the Basics. We've gone over uh, over the past year or so um, prayer, Psalm 23, the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 19. And today we're going to finish that, that sermon series with loving one another. It's a basic of the faith that we never leave, making sure that we, no matter what we're doing, no matter what trials we're going through, no matter what we're thinking through, we major on the majors and minor on the minors. Uh, we sometimes, oftentimes, need people to remind us of that. It's so easy to get caught up in your own way of thinking, isn't it? And it's great to talk to other believers and to get some perspective on majoring on the majors because we can get off course. Maybe it's not the, the broad path we're getting on, but maybe we can be going down a path we don't need to be going down. We're going to be covering a couple different passages today, but I want to start out by being very clear in what love is. It is God-centered. 1 John 4 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And he goes on to add a little bit later that it's that He loved us first. And so it is God-centered. God is the one that gets all the credit. Yes, we're going to be talking about loving one another, but the source for loving one another is because God loves us. In our modern American culture, we use love kind of flippantly. You've heard it before. With the same word, we say, I love ice cream, like Ghirardelli's chocolate ice cream place at the, uh, uh, what's that, the um, outlet malls, right? But at the same rate, we also tell our spouse, I love you. I mean, we mean something different by that, don't we? Well, love is not an idea. I don't want to get into the debate about whether love is a desire and a feeling and emotion and then shown itself in an action. Is love an action? Is it a feeling? Is it a desire? If we're going to understand love, we have to understand, as John says again in 1 John 4, God is love. This is the magnificence of worship. We're not just talking about an idea. We're talking about God. God is love. This is why we worship Him. Because His love is so great. Because He is love. So we stand in awe and silence and fear and trembling because He is our holy God. But 
Scripture kind of reminates in our brains and in our souls. As we talk about love, maybe you're thinking what Jesus says in Matthew 24, that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. So it's important to persevere in our love. You can turn, if you want, to Matthew 24. We'll spend a few minutes looking at Jesus' prophecy of love turning cold in many. We're going to look at Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14 first. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. The opposite of love. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But verses 13 and 14 remind us that while the love of many grows cold, there are the people who are the true church of God. There are healthy churches out there. And it's right to describe churches as healthy and unhealthy as we read seven descriptions of churches in Revelation 2 and 3. I praise the Lord that when I talk to people, I describe our church as a small, healthy church that's very loving, that has a lead pastor who's not overbearing. It's wonderful. And preaches good, and that I pay attention like, uh, I tell them I pay attention 90% of the time. That's pretty good, okay? (laughs) Historically speaking, a lot of times I just, historically speaking, in my testimony of being in churches, it was the opposite, where I only paid attention 10% of the time. And some of you may have unfortunately been in churches like that. So we're in a loving church, but verses 13 and 14 say that one who endures to the end will be saved. May that be us. May we persevere to the end individually and as a church. And then in the midst of The love of many growing cold, though, the gospel is going forward. In verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I think it's interesting that we have a contrast here with the love of many growing cold, yet the gospel still going forward. What does that mean? It means that there are those who are enduring and whose love has not grown cold. I am determined by God's grace, to finish the race that I have started faithfully, as many have gone before me, and as I go with many other people to finish that race that I have started, and to proclaim this gospel to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, to partner with you in bringing the gospel to the nations before the end comes. So the gospel will be proclaimed, as it says in Romans 10, how can they know unless someone goes and unless someone tells them? But Jesus tells us in John 13, how will they know you are my disciples? By your love. So you combine proclamation with love. And so love is important. It's not just a proclamation, but it's loving those around you. And so we know the gospel is going forward here in Matthew 24, 14. Not just because it's being proclaimed, but because there are those who are enduring to the end who are putting people before tasks, who are loving no matter what, who are fools for Christ. 
Well, why talk about love with New Covenant Bible Church, which does love well? That may not make much sense. Well, we are a church who loves well. And there are many examples of that. In the prayers that we pray, we're demonstrating our love and concern for those around us. We love, it. We love people when they're moving and help them load up or unload. I know the first person I really talked to in our church once I was coming down here was, was Steve Saylor. I said, hey, I'm Steve Saylor. I got a crew coming to unload you. It was just a memorable, these were the first people I was able to store in my phone. We're gonna, as as uh, Keith prayed, we're, uh, we were able to give thousands of dollars to David and Emma from the Tarchik family. Uh, Emma from the Tarchiks. Giving to Widow's Harvest in the past. By faith, we're trusting we're going give to give to it in the future. This summer, we've got a team of over 30 people going. Our desire is to raise approximately six or $7,000 to help that team go and to love those widows. Um, Skyler and James McNaughton are going to be coming back soon. That's Skyler, formerly Skyler Barger. Sylvie went over to Europe right now to go pick her up and bring her over here with her two children. Classic barber style, right? <laughs> Already, two children. Well, Paul says a similar thing to the church of Thessalonica, that they're doing well in loving one another. You can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 if you want, or you can just listen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, We always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. They're doing this well. They're growing in love. They're continuing to look for ways to show love to people. And so, in particular, the people of their own body. And so we give thanks to God, first and foremost, for that in our church. But then turn back just one page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And there is a place for urging to encourage one another to do so more and more. And so Paul tells them almost the same thing in his first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. First he says in verse 9 that you don't need anyone to teach you how to love one another because you are taught by who? God himself. It's the same thing that John says in 1 John 2. You don't need anyone to show you God. You don't need one to teach you about God because God is your primary teacher. The Holy Spirit is the primary teacher who helps you understand the Scriptures. And He's the only one that can reveal God to you. This is the most encouraging part of the message for me. I'm halfway through my life and I have a long way to go in learning how to love people. 
And I can't be desperate for the next book or the next person to teach me as much as we can be desperate to hang on to God to teach us to be loving towards one another. So we hang our hat on our prayers and depending on God to help us to be kind, to look for those opportunities to bless other people because we have been blessed to bless others. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's what they're doing. Nonetheless, there is a place for urging one another. Sometimes we need encouragement to, to follow a dream or, or just to go do a mission project of some sort. You mentioned to somebody, yeah, I've been thinking about helping my neighbor out and cut their grass, and then someone else says, well, you should go do it. <laughs> That's all the urging that you needed. Praise the Lord for the body of Christ. But it's interesting how the next part he says to kind of keep to yourself. So he says to love one another, and then he says to keep to yourself. Live a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. It seems that they were overly concerned with the return of Christ to the neglect of carrying out work. Work is a blessing. It's there before the curse. I love teaching youth, and one of the things I try to teach them, though it's their parents' primary job, not me, is that... I don't carry that burden. I'm just a catalyst, Lord willing. Is that work is a blessing. Go get a job. Be salt and light in this world. He says to work with your hands and to mind your own business. Don't be so... Sometimes we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So don't be overly concerned with those around you to the point where you're hassling them. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. But here he contrasts it by saying, yes, love one another. But don't forget to be a good steward of what God has put in your own hands and the value of work. Um, some of you have jobs that are ongoing and your work is never done. Some of you, though, have a job where at the end of the week or the end of the day you finish a project and it's done. That's, that's an amazing sense of satisfaction. Uh, find those small projects where you can say, I'm done, I've finished it. Glory be to the Lord. But let's go back to Jesus' words in John 13. John 13, you can turn there. Verses 31 to 35, this is where Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love. The old vineyard worship song, I memorized it as, they will know you are Christians by your love. We're going to look at John 13, verses 31 through 35. I wanted to ask you, if you were to spend your last meal on earth with a group of friends, which friends would you spend it with? Well, Jesus chose to spend it with the one who would betray him. Even the other 11 disciples who deserted him. Well, you know, a level down from betrayal. His own scattered around him. But Jesus loved them to the end, particular Judas. And he even washed his feet. But then it picks up, and it's nighttime, and Jesus, having just washed all their feet, Judas has gone out. He's no longer in the room, and that is significant. It's first of all significant that Judas was there, as Jesus loved his enemies. As Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in my enemies. God even, Jesus even used his enemies to accomplish the purposes of fulfilling the scriptures. 
of bringing Christ to the cross, of him being delivered up for our transgressions. But verse 31 says that when he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, that phrase that John frequently used, this term of endearment. Yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But here is a new commandment that he gives to us, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And again, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. There was a certain professor who once asked a, a class, if they were to start a church, what ten principles or ideals or distinctives would be on your document? It's a hypothetical question just to get them thinking, kind of catch them in their thinking. Because their answer should have been that, well, we do have a guiding document, and we do have ten principles that guide us, and that starts with the law, the Ten Commandments. We had spent three weeks going over Deuteronomy 19 already, where God verbally gave them these ten distinctives of his people. We also know not to add to God's law, but here we have Jesus giving what seems to be, maybe you could call it an eleventh commandment. It's a new commandment. And this is just like Jesus and why the Pharisees didn't like him. He's adding to the law. <laughs> well, the Pharisees were pretty good at that anyway, so maybe they liked that. When I was a computer technician in the 90s, people needed to know what a, how computers worked back in the day. Some of you remember DOS 6.22 and Windows 3.11 as we moved to Windows 95, and now it's all so different, right? Well, we had this little, little pamphlet we handed people to help them understand computers. It was very helpful. And I, I think the owner of the company was, was originally Jewish, and he had put in there, kind of tongue-in-cheek, an 11th commandment. What would you make the 11th commandment of computers? And that is, thou shalt back up thy data. <laughs> we all know what it's like to lose your data. Um, nowadays, of course, it's all in the cloud. But Jesus did give us a new commandment. It says it right here. What is new about it? Well, it's a new covenant love. It's new because we have the example and the achievements of Christ because he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus dying on the, on the cross for us, being raised three days later, loved us. Staying on the cross for the full six hours and dying when he was tempted to come down. What's new about it? It's a redeeming and self-sacrificing love. We've often heard a definition of agape love being the love that God has for us. It's a good definition. But we could add to it that it's a redeeming, self-sacrificing love that we are called to emulate. Husbands in particular are called to emulate this as they lay down their lives for their wives. Yes, we are all called to sacrifice for each other. Yes, wives are certainly called to sacrifice for their husbands. But first and foremost, a husband is called to sacrifice himself for his wife, to make her life comfortable even while his becomes a little uncomfortable. 
That's why it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, to esteem her especially, to lay down your life for her, even in, and especially starting with the little things. But what else is new about this commandment isn't just the example of Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit that is now empowering his people. As Jesus ascended up to heaven, and ten days later sent the Holy Spirit to enable us to love one another sacrificially. You can turn back a couple chapters if you want to John chapter 7 and listen to Jesus talking about this, or you can just listen. I'm going to be in John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out as if in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it makes very clear what he's talking about. It's a prophecy. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been manifested or empowered, because Jesus has not been glorified. When it says given, the idea there from the context is that it had not been manifested or, or empowered because Christ has not gone to the cross. In fact, at one point, Jesus told the disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody what's going on. Now, that's weird to, to hear, isn't it? Why is he doing that? Because the Holy Spirit had not been unleashed yet to go and empower them to be able to share the gospel with people, for people's hearts to be enlightened and to see the truth of the gospel. What's different about this love, yes, is the self-sacrificial love that we have in Christ, but that Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, so that it's not just an idea that God loves me, but this is God inside of me, consuming me, controlling me. The love of Christ, what? Compels us to do the things that we do. But it's not just about you individually. It's also about us doing it collectively. And without love, you are not a church, no matter what you are doing. So, as Revelation 2 says, don't forsake your first love. The truest characteristic of the church is loving one another as we abide in the love of our triune God. Let me repeat that. The truest characteristic of the church is loving one another as we abide in the love of our triune God. Now you may be wondering in that statement, where is truth? You have love here. Where do you find the word? Isn't the church centered around that? Well, it's embedded in this statement. First of all, the characteristic of the church. Well, what is the church? The church, by definition, is where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments or the ordinances are rightly practiced. That is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So there's truth, the word rightly preached. That's what the church is. But it's also there when we say love, because you can't be loving without being truthful and letting people know the reality that in the Scriptures, everyone has Adam as their representative. But you have to choose, you have a choice to make, a response as to whether Christ will be your representative. And that makes all the difference. 
And so to look at love in the church, we could go to several different places today. We could look at Revelation 2 where it says to not forsake your first love. Their works were done without love. We could go to 1 Corinthians 13 where it says the greatest of these is love. Where Paul says that unity is accomplished in the church when you're loving one another with your spiritual gifts. And so loving one another there, he ties it to using your spiritual gifts in the church, not just being a part of the church that is loving. We could also go to Galatians 5, where we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You could say there's nine of them, but really they're all just uh, loving one another. It's all different ways of loving one another. It's really just one fruit. It's different ways to love one another. But today I'd like us to go to some practical help in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. If you'll turn to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I want us to spend a little bit looking at Paul's exhortations to be loving in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Here he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, and sacrifice to God. He says to be imitators of God, knowing that God is love. And so we are to imitate God's love as the Spirit resides and abides and is filled inside of us, and as the Word of God is in front of us and even hidden in our hearts. We know that God is love. We're reminded of that every time we read the Scriptures, and we need those reminders as Keith reminded us, too often we soak up things in this world. We need to instead soak up God. The latest book that I ordered this week in hopes that it would change my life, as I do every week, <laughs> is uh, it's called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read it. Instead of being content with meditating on God's Word, instead of listening to the radio, listening to God's Word, but being an imitator of God has in mind that we are image bearers. And being in the image of God means three things. It means that you love God, you love man, and you also love his creation. Those three things in that order. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Yes, you have a relationship with all those, but your relationship with God, man, and his creation is one of love. And that's how you imitate God in all three of those areas. And that's how we define our purpose in life. How are you doing in imitating God, in loving others, loving God, and, and loving His creation? Well, we do this as beloved children. This isn't just a religion. It's a personal relationship. It is the one true religion. Is Christianity a religion? Some people say, no, it's a personal relationship. Well, it is a religion. James 1.27 says that. What is pure religion? Well, practicing what you do. Because Christ has loved us, we love others. But it is the only one true religion. And it is a relationship. Yes, with Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my Lord, even as my brother, but also with our Father, because we are His children. And that means a lot. That means we have an inheritance. That means that He cares for us. That He loves us as a father loves their child. 
I want to peel back to the previous verse, chapter 4, verse 32, where I think we have a definition of what it means to be loving. And that is to be kind. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you want a definition of being loving and imitating God who is love? Then be kind to one another. Now, I haven't gone to a dictionary or a Bible dictionary and looked up the word kind. I want to get a definition from that, from the context here. And if you want to be kind, the next word tells us to be tender-hearted. I will go to a dictionary and look up the word tender-hearted. This means to be compassionate and gentle, even big-hearted. Being somebody who cares for others, compassionate, gentle. So to get a definition of love, we go here to see that we should be kind, we should be tender-hearted. But there's a connection here to the next phrase, which says, forgiving one another. There's no long-term relationships without forgiveness. And so we have joined here tender-heartedness or big-heartedness and forgiveness. Now that word tender-hearted, you'll recognize as coming from more especially Philippians 4. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen if you want. But in Philippians 4, Paul entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. It doesn't say they have to like each other. But they have to love each other, and they have to be agreeable. Yodia and Syntyche, you go to the same church, you have to agree with one another. You're taking the Lord's Supper frequently for the purposes many purposes. One of them is demonstrating the unity in the body of Christ. And he's entreating them, he's begging them, get, a, get rid of your hatred or your bitterness and to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine having your name in the Scriptures? That'd be an honor. But their names are in the Scriptures because they were fighting with one another. We trust that they made up. I believe that in verses 4 and 5, Paul gives them one of the solutions to being unified together in the church. He says to rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it. Say it again, rejoice. If you're going to get along with others, you first and foremost need to be grateful for your own salvation. Knowing that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And then there's this word, let your reasonableness be known to all. That is, big-heartedness, your gentleness, your compassionate demeanor. It's not about a personality trait, because the Beatitudes apply to every Christian. That's not just particular Christians. The Beatitudes are a characteristic of all Christians. Let your big-heartedness be known to all, for the Lord is at hand. I am close to the Lord only because of Christ and what He has done on the cross. So there's a connection here, twice, between forgiveness and having a gentle, reasonable, that is, thinking about the gospel reasons, and being compassionate. That is, you're looking at the other person knowing that, that they're a sinner just like you are. You have an empathy towards that person instead of hatred. You put yourself in their shoes, and you recognize that the greatest sin that has ever been forgiven is my own and not theirs. 
And so if we're going to love one another, we have to lament a situation of discord instead of lamenting and hating the person and forgiving one another. And there it is, Ephesians 4.32. How do we love one another? What's new? It's as God in Christ forgave you. The recurring theme of the gospel. My, uh, as an example of somebody who is not bitter, I personally have been encouraged by the life of my own grandfather. I was able to conduct his funeral last week. He died a week ago at the age of 90. He lived a full life, so it's okay. But when I tell people about him, I tell them that, that he was in a, um, a World War II concentration camp. Not like the ones over in, in Europe. Uh, it was more of a labor camp, but it, he was in um, Japanese-occupied Dutch Indonesia near the Philippines. And he was in a, a labor camp there. Now, he was only about 12 years old or so. And so he says they were able to, you know, push off some food to him. The soldiers would give him some food because he was like, kind of like a child. Nonetheless, you read the history of those camps, and they were moved from camp to camp. They were harsh conditions, and there's no doubt he was mistreated. But because Christ was in his heart, he was somebody who was described at his funeral as being somebody who was gentle. He was forgiving. He was not somebody who held bitterness in. That destroys your bones, Proverbs says. But as we think about being kind to one another and removing bitterness as Christ has forgiven us, in my own life I have been pressed to believe that I, God, is the one true God. You have to ask yourself that question. Do I have that assurance of salvation? Or, first of all, is God real? Because when I was on a mission trip and about the age of 20 in Thailand for an entire summer, I got to interact with a lot of families. One of the families was a very loving family. They had three children. I got to stay with them for a while. Uh, and this woman even was a, uh, a Buddhist teacher. So these are good Buddhist people. And they were very loving. And I thought, there wasn't much difference between their family and mine, it seemed. So it pressed me to say, is my God the true God? As our catechism question asked us today. And then about, I don't know, five years later, I remember interacting with a, a man from Iran who was my, my mentor when I graduated from college. He, he taught me about farming. And I was in charge of a small part of the farm, and there were a bunch of dogs there. Like, I remember there was about seven of them, some wild dogs or whatever you call a wild dog. They were getting in the way, and, uh, but people were, were loving the dogs. They were feeding them. It was a distraction to work. Hey, we're here to work, right? Not here to interact with animals and... Occasionally, he would bark at the truck drivers, so it's a liability. So I called the Humane Society, and they came and picked up the dogs. Um, that was a simple problem to solve. Well, the next day, the, the secretary lady was all mad at me. I have no idea why. Okay, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, but this man, who was my mentor, said, Brian, she's mad at you because you got rid of her dogs. He had the perception to see that. He cared for her. He said, go buy her a gift. Try to amend that. This man's lost. He's not a Christian. Um, and so I went to Walmart, bought this little stuffed animal dog that was like the same color of one of those dogs, a little brown dog, gave it to her, and 
brought tears to her eyes. And, and it, it amended the relationship. Now, who's the hero in that story? Not me. It's this lost man having the perception to be kind. And I just, I'm struck by that as I'm trying to share the gospel with this man who's kinder than me, who has the Holy Spirit inside of him. What are you going to do with that? Well, there's a couple answers that I've arrived at that I would like to share with you. One is that there is no eternal value in the love of those who don't know Christ here on earth. It makes no difference in eternity. And that's where we hang our hat, is things in eternity. Two, we know that they have a God-shaped void inside of them and that they're doing it for selfish reasons. Ultimately, there's an idol on their heart, which is them, themselves, doing it for their own glory. Even though they are having loving actions, their motives aren't to bring honor to the one true God, who is Christ. But two, also, there is that fact that God has enabled everybody through what's called common grace, to enjoy the things in this world. Unbelievers can enjoy the blessings of marriage, whether it's the act of marriage or whether it's children or grandchildren, or the joy of a couple being faithful to each other their whole lives, even if they're unbelievers. But God's kindness is there to lead us to repentance. And ultimately, whatever is accomplished on earth with unbelievers and being kind to one another, it has no eternal value. And what a difference it makes when people who we rub shoulders with in the church and who have the Word of God inside of them encourage us. Yeah, we can share some stories about lost people being kind, but how many stories can we share about the love of Christ in our own body? We multiply them, and we keep on multiplying them. Let's go to Ephesians 5.2, where it says that we are called to then walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So are we called to be a fragrance to those who are perishing and those who are being saved. We are the aroma of Christ. And that happens when we walk in love. This idea of walking on love is walking with God, who is love, is throughout the Scriptures. We see it, first of all, in Adam walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God, who is love. We read in our call to worship today in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And when are you to talk about and think about God? Constantly, and it goes and gives the analogy of when you're walking or when you're sitting, wherever you are talking about God. If you were to go to Psalm 1, you see here also the idea of walking with God and not walking with the world. The first few verses of Psalm 1 say, Blessed is the man. This man is first and foremost Jesus Christ, where Pilate says, Behold the Man. Where were Jesus' first words in his first recorded public sermon? All about blessings and blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man. The example of righteousness, the example of love is found in Christ. It is not found in us when we walk with sinners. 
Because when you walk with sinners, you're tempted to then do what? To stand with them and to sit with them. And so we flee temptation. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But by contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. And then you will be fruitful, it says. And whatever you do, it will prosper, and God will bring blessings to the work of your hands. And yes, you can think of Joseph in the Old Testament. You can think of Daniel. You can think of Esther as fruitful lives, but we first and foremost need to think of Christ. And if we're going to bear fruit, then it needs to be the fruit of love, as Galatians 5 reminds us. And so all this is as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're constantly reminded of that. And then we are to share Christ with others. How will they know you are Christians? By your love. We are a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we are a fragrance of Christ to those around us. I want to finish by looking at 1 John chapter 5 today by asking us a question of assurance of salvation. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 John 5. I want to ask you, do you have God's love? Do you have God's love? This question is asked not primarily out of a sense of have you ever had God's love? Do you have God's love in you? But more in the sense of an assurance of salvation. Are you sure that you have God's love in you? Because John writes, he says, in verse 13, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these to you who believe, who already believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as we're talking about love, John does so in a way that grants us assurance of salvation. And that comes, interestingly enough, by observing whether you love others. If you love God first, then you're going to be able to love others. It starts with believing in God, with loving God, and then we receive that love and reproduce it in the lives of others. It's that simple. Receive God's love, reproduce it in the lives of others, consistently and faithfully. Follow along with me as we read 1 John 5, 1-5. through 5. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So remember, he's writing to us that we may know that we have eternal life. And it starts with, first and foremost, according to 5.1, believing that Jesus is the Christ. That is an objective truth. But it then comes and controls our lives. That God's love isn't just something that's there, but it's inside of me. And I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus 
is the Christ, that he was born of God, that he came, that he died on the cross for my sins. This is the gospel that we never leave. This is a basic you never, ever leave. Yes, you go on to maturity, but you never leave this pureness of the gospel. Then he says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And John says over and over and over again, we don't hate our brothers. We love them. That's how you know the love of Christ is in you. He adds to this in verse 2 that we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus talked about commandments. Jesus talked about the greatest commandment. He gives us a new commandment today, but he also told us what the greatest commandments are. Listen to Matthew 22. The Pharisees came and they asked him a question and they said, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Well, you know the answer. You've heard it before. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Because God is love, because we know God, we love others. In that order, I love God and I love others. As a result of that, we rule God's creation and we love His creation. So how do I know that I have the love of God in me? I'm keeping His commandments by loving God and loving others. Intentionally. Thoughtfully. With kindness. Not just because you have to. I love going out to eat. And occasionally, um, you know, or not occasionally, but sometimes you're like, man, that was a really good, good waiter or a good waitress, right? I, actually, I accidentally saw the receipts of some at a, at a pizza place I was at lately. And one of the bills was... Uh, was like $30, and the other one was like $40. And each of those people left like a $10 and a $20 tip. And I was like, man, I thought I was being generous. These people are like, you know, gave like a 25% tip or something, you know? But when a waiter or a waitress serves you, and you have a good waiter or waitress, what, what would it take to change that person's attitude? <laughs> you leaving a 5% crummy tip. No longer do you have a good waiter or a good waitress. They're mad at you now. And so our love for each other, our kindness for each other, our obeying God's commands by loving one another is to be genuine, expecting nothing in return. But how are his commands not burdensome? How can you, how can you believe that? How can you say that? Well, listen to Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do you believe that? Only by faith can you believe that his commandments are not burdensome. Only by faith can you believe that the Spirit of God lives inside of me 
and enables me to walk on that narrow path until the day I cross the finish line, whenever that is. And death catches all of us by surprise. Even at 90, still somehow catches you by surprise. It's only by faith that we can believe that his commandments are not burdensome to sometimes love the unlovable. But that's exactly what it goes on to say here. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Believing that God is good. Believing that God is love. Believing that His commandments are not burdensome, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Only by faith. And even encouraged by the testimonies of others. And he concludes in verse 5 in the same way he started, that it all is rooted in a belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we sing those sweet songs to our Savior. Not just talking cerebrally about Jesus, knowing that God loves us, but it's passionate, it's felt. And when we gather as a people, we don't just listen to a sermon for an hour. We worship our God to express our hearts of love with words and with songs, and also expressing our, our desires of our heart in prayer. And so assurance of salvation is found in your works of loving others and obeying, even loving, God's commandments. Psalm 119 has given us something like 157 prayers to pray of loving God's Word, of actually seeing God's commandments as good for me. What a place to arrive in life by faith, not just I have to keep God's commandments, but believing that they are good for me. I wish that was automatic as a Christian, but it's something we have to fight for. And how did God demonstrate his love for us? Well, he demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. God sent his son die for our sins, to be raised three days later, to not leave us as orphans, but to send us His Spirit. He demonstrated this love because God is love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the salvation that You have given to me and to Your people. I thank You that our church is a loving church. Lord, we, we pray that You would help us to be loving and persevere to the very end. Lord, I pray you would encourage us to believe that we can obey you with what you are calling us to do. I pray for everybody in here for the desires that they have in their hearts and in their minds to love those in the body of Christ and that you would put them in touch with the body of Christ here to love one another. Lord, I especially pray today that you yourself would teach us how to love those around us. No man has access to our heart, only you do. And I pray you would continue to grow us towards you as you have so many people in the past. In your name we pray, amen.